My writing process is a reflection of my creativity on one hand and this voice that it has to be perfect on another hand. Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. My name is Kim O'Hara. I'm an intuitive book coach at A Story Inside, and I'm interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life who have a story to tell. Do they have a book in them? Stick around and find out. I am so excited today to have on the show Britton Derby, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in trauma and addiction. And what I love about Britton is that he made a decision to change his story and his life later in the game. He was in his 60s when working as a bellman at the W Hotel, he went back to school to be a therapist. He brings a lot of life history to the table. And thank you so much, Britton, for talking with me today. It's good to be here with you. So tell me, what was that moment that you knew you had to make a change from working as a bellman? That's an interesting question. I don't think there was a moment. There was lots of um, lots of moments, lots of decisions and indecisions, and basically an internal struggle to overcome the idea that it was too late. And I can remember, I can remember being 28 years old and not really, uh, my music career was not really launching the way I thought it would. And me thinking, I can't do anything else because it's too late. So that was the same, you just repeated that just in a different context when you were working as a bellman and you started to think, hmm, Maybe, I mean, really, it's hard on your body, number one, right? So you must have started thinking there would be an exit plan of some kind, correct? I I did, but I didn't have anything specific. And so what I did was I struggled with um, finding something to believe in that I, that I could point my, my compass. And how did you find that? And so... Well, I did some trial and error, and I really thought about what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing regardless of the financial consequences. And that was, a, that, that was a key factor, I would say. How did you know that you were good at talking to people about their trauma or their addiction? Was it just people would just randomly? Because I know, for example, as a book coach, People don't even know I'm a book coach and they just will start telling me their life story. It happens to me all the time. I don't know if I just vibrate that I'm someone that can help them cultivate that. Did you find that people were talking to you about their situations and that's when you knew you were good at it? I would say that's pretty much true. Mm. Um, I had I had situations where I had an opportunity to sort of... Um, not only talk to people, but talk to them in a way that they felt I was genuinely interested in what they had to say. <laughs> and that's the, key, that's the key component. Because you can be listening to what somebody's saying to you and not be present and not hear what somebody's saying to you. And I was, 
I found that I was, unbeknownst to myself, I was actually present for somebody's conversation with me. And once I realized that, I realized that I was, I could be good at this and it would be, and it benefited somebody in some way. I think that was one of the key moments. Well, that's interesting because um, I know, and you've mentioned this to me before in our prior conversations that, you know, your personality, you have a lot of energy, maybe, I don't know if it's like diagnosable ADD, but you're a very energetic person. So it's interesting that you're <laughs> able to sit down and focus like that. <laughs> well, I have handcuffs on right now. So um, <laughs> I, um, I uh, am one of those people. I have always been one of those people uh i was the you know i was the five-year-old kid that was bouncing around the house you know my grandparents are watching ed sullivan saying can't you just sit still and i go just give me another minute <laughs> and i i was just bouncing around the house and i couldn't sit still and i was uh, very agitated and looking for something but not knowing what i was looking for mm. and so um, that's, that's always been one of my, um, characteristics, I would say. So tell me about going back to school. You know, what was the hardest part of that? Did you feel, uh, out of place and did you doubt yourself at any point? Did I doubt myself at any point? It's a great question. I, I will tell you, I had gone back to school, quote unquote, so many times <laughs> that, I mean, I went back to school, like, for the fifth time it finally worked. You know, I went back to school to study music, and I went back to school to study psychology. I went back to school to study language, and I went back to school to study poli-science, political science, and then I went, you know, so, I mean, it, they were like, Santa Monica College was like, uh, oh, here he comes again. It's this guy. Remember this guy from 10 years ago? It's him again. Here you still have. Again. I wonder what it is this time. You still have the he's, same he's ID. Back. You he's still back. have the same ID. He still looks good. He still looks good and inspired. He's back. And so um, so I, I really uh, had done that so many times that um, that that really wasn't the question. The question was what I was going to do and and um, I think the big hurdle was, the big hurdle for me was um, knowing, not knowing how difficult it was going to be, number one, and not knowing how long it was going to take, number two. Because, because you, you start asking around, well, how long is it going to take to get um, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree? 3,000 hours of internships and then finding a job. I mean, you, it, this is a total five to six to seven year immersion of your life. Wow. Especially when you're starting it. What, yeah. at 62, right? You started around 62. I did. I did. It's amazing. So if you don't think life, if you, if you're one of those people that thinks life is over at 28, <laughs> it's really hard to, you know, so, so I mean, the much. deal was for me is I had some recovery. I had some recovery and I had a new voice in my head about what that was. Right, right. I know. And I'm inspired because, you know, at 50, 
I, I'm starting a podcast at 50. I'm not giving up on the dream of being a talk show host. You know, I could get into my head and be like, who wants to look at like, by the time I get there, who wants to look at a 55 year old woman, like on television? And, a talk- <laughs> and I'm like, I do, you know what I mean? Like I believe in myself, you know, plus I look pretty good for my age. So I'm like, you know, maybe I'll pull off, you know, 45 or something, but so in your life prior to this, it's been very textured, should I say, and you've had many different jobs in the LA area, whether it was driving a catering truck for event planning icon, Mary Micucci, or driving a limo for famous people. And, you know, when you tell me the limo stories, I always say you should write a book about that because they're so good. Do you want to tell us one of them? Well, first of all, I did. The reason I got a limo job is because I had worked in every restaurant in L.A. <laughs> as a waiter. So uh, I needed to do something else. So I'm picking this, these uh, clients up and I, and I noticed. They're all Chinese. And they all have the, the kind of clothing that you can't buy here unless it's like some uh, an on sale at Melrose, uh, Melrose or something. The kind of um, <laughs> the kind of uh, you know um, it, they were from communist China. It was yeah. very obvious they were from communist China. It turned out it was the ambassador, the United States from China, his wife, his assistant, and a translator. The four of them. They get in my car. And they say, we can't tell you where we're going, just drive. And I'm driving down the 405 for like an hour. We drive up to this house and the gates open. There's no the gates just open out of nowhere, kind of like, you know, a magic wand. And we drive up to the house and it's the, it's the house that I've seen in pictures. It's the Western White House. It's Richard Nixon's house in 1977 after he left the White House in 1974 after resigning because of Watergate. So I pull up, they get out of the car, and they instruct me to wait, uh, have, have lunch or dinner with the Secret Service. And I'm watching the Laker game with the Secret Service. And this older gentleman with a badge and a gun comes in and says, would you like to see Richard Nixon's private office? And I thought, the Lakers are losing. I've eaten already. Yes. <laughs> right. So, so then I get, so I get up and he takes me to this sort of, I don't know if you remember that they're, they're kind of like permanent bungalow, permanent temporary bungalows. The kind of things they put in schools when they want to put up a classroom, you know, it's going right. to be there for 25 years, but it looks temporary. Right. <clears throat> it was one of those things. And he says, by the way, you're probably one of the only private citizens to see this room. Whoa. I thought, oh, my God. This, the gravity of the, of the situation is hitting me. And so he opens the door, and I walk in, and it is a huge room, single room, with um, a, a French colonial desk right to my left and a French colonial with a green leather top and kind of small. And it it was obviously Nixon's desk. And there's the American flag and the presidential flag on either side of the desk and back of the seat. And he says, that's his desk. Would you like to sit down at it? And I turn to the right and there's this sort of a 
a little table. They, the, the, the name for the table is called a secretary. It's not a person. Right. It's a table where you have stuff to the right. And there's a tape machine to the right. And I said, that's a tape machine. And he says, that's a tape machine. That's the famous tape machine that made the, the Rosemary Woods tape machine that made the 17-minute mistake. Wow. That tape machine was at the center of the Watergate controversy, among other things, right? So there's, so now I'm getting, now I'm awe-inspired. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll take you around and I'll show you around. So I go down to the center of the, the center of the uh, office and there's a oval um, ebony, dark ebony coffee table. And he said, that was Abraham Lincoln's favorite coffee table for his entire presidency. Oh my God. And what Nixon was doing was he was opening up this avenue of, of dialogue with the communist world. And that's why they called the private limousine company. They didn't want anyone to know that they were here. So how did they know you were going to be confidential or did they just think that you were so like non, you know, consequential that it didn't matter if you said anything to anybody? Well, confidential, I couldn't wait to get home and tell my dad, you know, I mean, it was like, so, uh, but I don't know. I, I really have thought about that. And I think, I think they just assumed that uh, a limousine company would be um, uh, a sort of higher level of security or, um, I, I don't know what you would call it, sort of confidentiality. Yes, exactly. So the next day I took them back and the next day I got a, uh, a <clears throat> the same direction, picked them up Saturday morning as directed and we drove out to Palm Springs to Rancho Mirage the next day. Wow. And this time there was a lot more secret service. We drove up to this house. It was Gerald Ford's house. And I get out of the car and there's every, everybody's opening doors and stuff. And I walk up to the front door and there's Gerald Ford, strong, six foot four, virile, just handsome, a great presence. He goes, welcome, welcome young man. Why don't you go to the kitchen, the back door? of the kitchen, knock on the back door and we'll feed you breakfast and you stay there till we're done. So I walk over, I knock on the back door and it opens and there's Betty Ford <laughs> opening the door for me Wow! with a glass of wine in her hand. And this one of in the course. afternoon. Right. She's a little tipsy, I would say. Come on in, hon, we're going to eat. And so I ate lunch with Betty Ford and their son, Jack Ford, who has his face buried in the Wall Street Journal or whatever it was the entire time. Hence the creation of the infamous Betty Ford, you know, clinics, because she got sober. That's exactly correct. You saw Betty Ford tipsy. You had breakfast with a tipsy Betty Ford, sat at Abraham Lincoln's desk, and amazing. So let me ask you this. Sure. I know this is just one of many of these stories. So tell me about sure. your writing process. What has happened to you when you've sat down to write about these experiences? That's a great question. Getting a bachelor's degree, you have to take a writing course. And I've been one of those people throughout my life that sits down for five minutes, starts writing, I get through one paragraph, and I'm I'm in my car somewhere going. <laughs> and I just... I, my, my ability to sit and concentrate about and do something like that has been 
uh, has been left wanting, I would say. And so, but I had to, because of school, I had to force myself to start writing. And what I, and what I did was I started writing these stories and, um, and I'll tell you about my writing process. And this is a great question. My writing process is a reflection of my creativity on one hand and this voice that it has to be perfect on another hand. So I had that voice of, it's not perfect enough, you might as well stop right now. And so that I had to fight through that and I had to, and frankly, I would write just sort of flow of consciousness to get warmed up for 10 minutes. And then I find myself in the process and that's what it's like for me. It's very, very helpful. And, you know, it's, and I see this time and time again, obviously the perfectionism that holds people back, it has to be perfect where, you know, they don't understand that writing is a process where you do many, many drafts and things can change and adjust. And also, it's not that easy to just sit down and write a series of stories. There needs to be a through line. So I think for you, if you were going to write a book about this, there would need to be some kind of context. Um, And, you know, you deal with a lot of people that are you know, have come up from hard upbringings. Is that right? Is that, is that where you think the trauma comes from? I mean, have you seen that in, in the viscosity of your life, in the people you've run into, whether it's been Whitney Houston, you know, in troubled times or any people that are in these troubled times, do you think that seeing that and witnessing those, you know, personal experiences on a celebrity level is a way you could integrate that into the work you do with trauma? Well, that's another great question. Um, what I see in, in what I do for a living as a therapist, what I see is people's uh, difficulties in, uh, as an adult uh, as a reflection of the sort of developmental uh, struggles they've had as kids. And, there's, and, there's, and this, can be, this can be controversial or it depends what kind of therapy you do. But in the world of addiction, there's always, um, I, I, you mentioned a through line. That's a, there's always some sort of string attached to some sort of developmental dysfunctional family trauma. Right. It's their story, it's right? It's the story that they are telling themselves from what they experienced, which is valid, right? There's no discounting mm-hmm. anybody's trauma, right? But then it's following that string and then almost course correcting it so that they can be free, so that they can have well, a better it, life, right? It's really the pain they're medicating. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's what they're medicating. The, the, the key in addiction treatment is you find out, uh, first of all, there has to be some, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I could go on forever, but there has to be a cessation of the current behavior in order to, to create a baseline, to clear your mind, to know exactly what you're dealing with. Because right. the, the addict comes in and thinks that alcohol is my problem. Because mm-hmm. it, intuitively, that's what it, people tell him, and that's what he believes himself, is that alcohol is his problem, for instance. But in, in actuality, alcohol is his solution. Right. Alcohol is what he's picked to make his problem better. So if alcohol is the solution, the temporary solution that has stopped working, 
you need to get down to causes and conditions. And well, causes that's what, and conditions right. always lead back to childhood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I was thinking yesterday when I was, um, I was thinking about famous people that have temper tantrums, right? That get into these <clears throat> positions of, you know, being revered, <clears throat> people, lots of people working for them. They're all that. And you hear about them throwing things across the room or whatever. And I was having that epiphany yesterday. I was like, just because they're famous doesn't mean that someone wor- helped them work out their childhood trauma. So now they're in a container where they're supposed to be, you know, lauded. And instead, they're just like the people, everyday people that might come see you or the celebrities that you drove. Anybody mm-hmm. who doesn't work out their trauma, it's going to come out no matter where they are, no matter how famous they are. It doesn't matter, right? Right. So uh, generally what I find is somebody has to understand to their innermost self that there's a problem here. And what happens to, and I won't say necessarily famous people, but people with some resources, unlimited resources, will keep you going on the same path for a long, for longer than somebody else who's running out of resources, number one, and running out of places to stay and running out of an entitlement or enablement, right? Right. Is enablement a word? I think it is. Um, so, <laughs> so, but, but this sort of unlimited resources that you would get or being surrounded by enablers or yes men telling you it's their job and they're paid to tell you how great you are and put up with your temper tantrums, that prolongs the process. It can. I'm speaking in generalities, but I think that's um, pretty poignant for for this kind of thing. Well, that's interesting what you said is that they can pay for it longer. So they almost want to sit in it longer and it's in an interesting way yeah. because, yeah, because it, you're it. right when you don't have the resources to keep going. I mean, <clears throat> from a personal experience, I knew when my therapy for my own trauma was complete. Now that doesn't mean that I'm not going to go back and have something come up in two years that I need to go speak to somebody about, but it felt complete for me, a with time, a with money. And also I just felt complete. So mm-hmm. let me ask you this last question. This has been an amazing sure. interview. How has being sure. a therapist brought to light your own trauma? Wow, that's an interesting question. So you, you have lots of interesting questions. Um, Thank you. There's a, there's a, there's a book by, um, by Alice Miller called The Drama of the Gifted Child. And it talks about why we become therapists. What makes us effective as a therapist is to understand somebody else's plight because we've been there ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of therapists, figuratively speaking, will, will become a therapist to fig- figure out some of their own stuff. But it makes you a good therapist. So do you able think... able to empathize with somebody else's experience. And, that, and that's why people become therapists is, is because they realize through their own journey, they're, they're able to help somebody else along the same. Thank you for coming here today and, and talking to us about your journey. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Have a good day. You too. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. To make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
If you'd like to know more about how to write a book, check us out at a storyinside.com. <laughs>